Christ burn till my guilty soul imploring turn to Calvary. Mercy there was grace and grace was free. Free, free love and there was multiplied to be. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Now I've given Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. Now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burden soul found liberty at Calvary. Oh, the love that true salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Free! Lord, oh, it does not plan to me. There my burden soul found liberty at Calvary. Let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you would, please. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll finish up verses 8 through 12 this morning. Poor brother Dennis is down for the count again, so we'll keep praying for him and ask the Lord to raise him up soon. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, let's go ahead and read the passage and then we'll open in a word of prayer. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. Because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned, who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth, Lord. We thank you for the infallible word of God, the standard by which we can live our lives, the standard, Lord, by which um, we can measure things. We thank you for absolute truth that you have proclaimed through your word. We thank you for preserving it down through the centuries and the ages and the millenniums. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to personally apply it today, not to uh, simply be glad that we have a faithful translation of it and to boast about having the right translation, but rather, Lord, to um, joy in the um, reality of actually living what it teaches. Help us to do that, we pray, in humility and wisdom. We know that knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to receive your word in humility and to live it in charity and wisdom. And we do pray for Dennis today. We ask that you would, uh, Lord, help him to get over this inflammation in his skin. We pray that you would 
uh, calm and encourages spirit. We ask that you be with Anna and give her wisdom for the future and the trials that she faces there and uh, be with her spirit, give her peace. We pray for Sylvia struggling with her back and we ask, Lord, that you would uh, help her and give her grace and strength, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are <clears throat> considering uh, this subject of the Antichrist. Of course, remember our goal and our theme for this particular section, and really it carries throughout the book of 2 Thessalonians, is you know, just be at peace. Don't fear. Remember, God is in control of both good and evil. He has everything taken care of, and there's nothing to um, get worried or flustered about. Remember, the world would love to rob us of our peace, but in order for that to happen, we have to surrender it up, do we not? But that's a choice that we make. The things that we allow through the eye gate, the things that we allow through the ear gate, the things we meditate on. The, that's what, when we meditate on the wrong things, think about the wrong things, when we're not immersed in the scriptures, then the world can rob us, so to speak, of our peace. But we have to surrender it. It's not something they can take away. Because Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Uh, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And so we consider the demise of the Antichrist. There is so much that the Bible reveals about this, really, in the Old Testament. Uh, Christ will defeat the Antichrist. His word in this, uh, the word in this, that wicked, is really uh, one word. It has the idea in the Greek passage to mean lawless, to be without law. So the Antichrist is one who is without law. He is, operates under the laws of evil, the laws of wickedness, but he is completely outside of the law of God. And surely that is uh, a spirit that we see moving in our world, uh, the younger generation not wanting to be subject to law, the older generation, no, really no one's excluded. People in general, at least in American culture, are very rebellious. But lest we just look at them and say, naughty them, stinks to be them, and think we have it all together. Remember, as we talked about last week, that from the womb, a child exhibits the tendencies of an antichrist. And from the womb, a child says, my way, mommy, my way, daddy, right? And so it's a constant battle. As Pastor pointed out last Sunday, or a couple of Sundays ago, the idea of forming the character between the ages of one and seven, it's a constant battle to keep check on that and to constantly um, not break the child's spirit necessarily but breaking that will and pointing that that little character back to Christ back to God back to the reality hey I'm not just the authority God's putting in your life there's an authority higher than me and that authority is working through me to keep you on a right track and so that's a constant necessity in a child's life otherwise you end up with the things that we see out in society criminals and, and all kinds of debauchery occurring. But we never, we never get away from that reality. You know, I'm rebellious by nature, and if I don't subject myself to God's word and his law every day, I will soon find myself outside of God's law. And so even though you may be born again, washed by the blood of Christ, saved, positionally sanctified, uh, practically speaking, you and I struggle with lawlessness every single day. So it's not hard to see how this lawless one will win over the world and they will be hail him as their long-awaited messiah but the word of god is clear though the lawless one will come into power though he will be strong 
Yes, he is that antichrist. He is the beast spoken of in Revelation. He will have his own kingdom. He will force everyone eventually to worship him. He will rule the entire earth. The entire economy of the earth will be unitized. It will be centralized. It will focus on the beast, his kingdom, and the power behind that kingdom, which is Satan. But the word of God is clear. He comes to his end. And that end is quick. It says, whom the Lord shall consume, first of all, with the spirit of his mouth. What is this spirit of his mouth? Well, if we trace in the scriptures and put the pieces together, we find out that it is uh, unarguably the word of God. Let's go back to the Old Testament, first of all. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. Isaiah gives us a prophecy concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. He is called the branch here. And though I do believe there are predictions here about his first coming, uh, ultimately the chapter speaks about his second coming and his kingdom. Why don't you notice something about how it says the Messiah here will destroy uh, this wicked one. And we'll notice some other interesting things as well. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And surely that is what happened as Christ was born of Mary, who was of the tribe of Judah, and um, also Joseph, the supposed uh, father, but he wasn't actually the father. Uh, he was also from Judah. And so we see that reality in Christ's first coming. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. We're still talking about the Messiah here. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. And isn't this interesting? Because Christ is God. And so this phrase I find interesting and intriguing. And the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Uh, something that we don't really put much weight into, you know, these days. Um, the fear of God, yeah, whatever. You know, I, I don't fear anything. And we have this fearless attitude. We don't need to fear this. We need to reverence that. Well, even Christ, who is God himself, the Messiah, who is deity, even he will exhibit, I believe as an example, for us, and because it is a very part of who he is in his absolute holiness, even he will exhibit the fear of the Lord. How much more should I, a sinful being, right? When the Messiah, totally sinless, will exhibit that reality. But even in, even in his complete power, even in his complete subjugation of the Antichrist, there is that reality. He has chosen an order of things. He will exhibit the fear of the Lord. The, there's the position of the Father, the position of the Son, the position of the Spirit, everyone having their own job, but all being one in deity and purpose, and being one God. Verse uh, 3, And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. Christ's judgment, especially when he comes back, will not be hearsay. It will not be he said, she said, we said. It will not be, well, I wonder if that's true, or I need two or three witnesses. Or No, he's God, and according to the scriptures, according to his omniscience, he will judge. And it will be absolutely pure and righteous. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity or equality or uprightness or straightness for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And so that's how he's going to destroy the Antichrist, with the word of his mouth, the breath of his lips. 
We could go on and read and determine that this is indeed speaking of the millennial kingdom because we see things like the cow and the bear shall feed together, the young ones shall lie down, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. In verse 9, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so what does it mean when it says that he shall uh, destroy him with the spirit of his mouth? Well, with the word of God. Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. Look at that. Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. And I'm going to back up just a little bit, but the verse of interest is really verse 15. And we see John falling at the feet of one of the angels, and the angel tells him, uh, I am not thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Prophecy has no value unless it's centered around Christ. Christ is the very spirit by which we um, read and understand Bible prophecy, in which prophecy is given. Verse 11, And I saw heaven open, to behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes arose a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. This is the second coming of Christ, the event that will take place after the rapture of the saints and after the tribulation period. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Christ is the incarnate or the living Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And so it is the word of God that will eventually destroy the Antichrist. There won't be some big amazing battle and uh, our Lord won't descend and start physically fighting people with a sword and there won't be any uh, <laughs> as um, Isaiah put it in uh, Isaiah chapter 9 for every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire did he not say? For unto us a child is born unto us a son is given he goes on and says there won't be any uh, Harry wondering who's going to win you know what's going to happen what's going to be the outcome there won't be any tension any uh, nervousness about the outcome Christ will just completely rule and uh, destroy the wicked with the word of his mouth but I, break, I, I emphasize this because here's the application for us in this passage we are told in Ephesians chapter 6 and you can go there if you want to Ephesians chapter 6 is we are commanded to adorn the armor of Christ the armor of God there's something towards the end of that armor that we're told to take in verse 17 of Ephesians 6. And we're told to take the helmet of salvation. So salvation protecting our minds, giving us security that we have a home in heaven, that regardless of faults or failures, hey, I don't have to worry, I'm safe in Christ. That helmet protecting the head, protecting the mind. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying always with all prayer and supplication and thanksgiving and watching thereunto with perseverance and supplication for all saints. And so we're told to take that sword of the word of God because without the Bible, we don't have anything with which to fight because obviously it is true. Okay? Uh, you know this verse well. Quote it with me if you like. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart 
And the picture is the sword going in there and cutting even to the most secret innermost place of the body, the joint, and splitting that open and the marrow inside the bone, leaving nothing unchecked, nothing hidden from sight. Well, so is the word of God. It pierces into the darkest place and pulls it back and spreads it open. As uh, Paul would later write in the book of Hebrews, for all things are naked, and the idea is of a sacrifice with his neck up, ready to be slit for, for offering on the altar. For all things are naked and opened. That's the idea there, opened uh, unto him with whom we have to do. Okay. And so there's that word of God that pierces and brings to light. And so my exhortation to us is immerse yourself in this. Uh, immerse, your, Encourage your children, encourage your, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, whatever the case may be, the young folks that are here in this church. Immerse yourself in the scriptures. Uh, you may not remember much of what Dr. So-and-so said about uh, creationism and its arguments. You may not remember reading that book. You may not remember reading much about the commentary uh, that you studied last week, or you may not remember much about um, the, the, the five principles of whatever of Calvinism. You may not remember much about books you've read. You may not be real book smart. Maybe math comes hard, and maybe you find it difficult to uh, go into arguments with people and debates with people. Maybe you're not the most gifted person. Maybe you're just flat out not that intelligent. <laughs> I don't know, whatever the case may be. But if you know the Bible, okay, and if the Bible flows through you and out of you, then you will be well. You will be well. And there's really no reason to, um, to stress about uh, other things if the word of God is pri uh, primary. I spoke with a man the other day, and uh, he asked for some money. I said, I'm going to give you money, but I'd like to share something with you. And I asked him about if he was uh, sure about where he would go. If he'd, I asked him if he'd ever heard about the gift of salvation. And uh, instantly, he had all kinds of theories about who Christ was, who the Bible was. Um, I call it hobo theology. You know, um, I don't have anything, but I know one thing, that God is a liar. <laughs> right? No, no matter what else is going on in the world, I know God's a liar. Um, but he said what Christ was uh, just a man and that the Bible wasn't true. And, and every time I tried to, you know, and I, I just, okay, I listened to him, listened to what he had to say, and then tried to give something from the Bible. Before I could even get halfway through, he would cut me off and begin to tell me again why none of it was true. He didn't want to hear. Okay? He had already made up his mind. Now, there was a time in my life when I would have been like, I've got to make this guy listen. I've got to win this argument. I said, thank you for your time. You've obviously decided what you believe. Have a good day. So the word of God was not, he had no regard in his heart. So I had not, there was nothing left to say because this is the means by which we argue. This is the means by which we debate. This is the means by which we show people and they can reject it, but ultimately it will win. Okay, ultimately it will win. So immerse yourself in this. Immerse yourself in this. I like what the text says here that he will be destroyed by the spirit of his mouth and by the brightness of his coming. That word is epiphania, brightness. Does that sound familiar? Uh, I had an epiphany. I suddenly realized something, or something suddenly appeared is the idea. Something suddenly appeared in my mind. I had an epiphany. Uh, think about the old Antichrist type in Antiochus Epiphanes, who ruled somewhere between 170 and 165 B.C. before he finally died of, uh, of disease. But uh, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. I thought it was interesting that God used the same word to describe the coming of the true Messiah, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. And everywhere else in the New Testament, this word is used. It's translated as coming 
where it's translated as um, something that is shown. But this is the only place it's translated really brightness. And so when Christ comes back, the sudden reappearance of his majesty and his glory will be overwhelming. And uh, just the thought of that should put our hearts to rest, that our, the Lord doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our wisdom. The day of the Antichrist will be short. Daniel 11, chapter 30, chapter, Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. Go there with me if you would. I need to kind of pick things up and, and get moving on this. But Daniel chapter 11, in verse 36, verses 1 through 35 in Daniel 11, talk about Antiochus Epiphanes, the um, prototype of the true Antichrist. Antiochus Epiphanes is dead, has been for a long time. Uh, unfortunately, the man is in hell today, according to um, uh, history. But look at verse 36, the text takes a sharp turn and seamlessly really transitions into the Antichrist of the future times. Uh, it's no surprise the prophets often do this when talking about a type to transition into the actual person spoken of in that type. But uh, none of these events happened in the life of Antiochus Epiphanes, and so it's pretty safe to say that we're talking about the Antichrist here. These things have never been fulfilled in anyone in history that we know of, and they fit very well with the prophecies given in Revelation. But look at the end that this man is going to uh, come to at the, end, at the end of the chapter. And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. He's going to place himself in the temple of God like we read about in Revelation, or like we just read about in Thessalonians. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces and the God, and I'm not going to comment on a lot of these things. We don't have time. They're very complex. I don't want to get on a sidetrack, but... Um, he shall honor with gold and silver and with precious things and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and uh, shall divide the land for gain. So he's going to uh, make havoc of the land of Israel. He's going to make havoc of the world. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him and the king of the north shall come against him with a whirlwind, with chariots and with horsemen with many ships and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over and he shall enter into the glorious land which is uh, Israel and many countries shall be overthrown but these shall escape out of his hand Edom, Moab, chief children of Ammon he shall stretch forth his hand against Egypt, Egypt in verse 42 but what happens at the end of the Antichrist's reign according to Revelation chapter 16 is God begins to pour out those bowls of judgment what's one of those bowls? one of those bowls is darkness is it not? Remember it says God pulled out, poured out his sixth vial, or it was the fifth, I can't remember which one, and there was darkness upon the seat of the beast and upon his kingdom, and they gnawed their tongues for pain. All right, and then it pours out another bowl and three unclean spirits out of the beast's mouth and out of the serpent's mouth and out of the false prophet's mouth go out, and then there's kings that are gathered together. The Euphrates River dries up, and these kings from the east come, and the Antichrist comes. Well, I don't know, understand really all of what that entails, but it says here that he's going to receive some troubling news out of the north, verse 44. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him, therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many, and he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, which is in Israel. So he's going to beat it back north toward the end of his reign, 
And I believe this ties in with Revelation 16, where we see the kings of the earth gathering themselves together. Maybe they're gathering together to fight with each other. The, the scriptures do sign it, uh, kind of seem to indicate that. But regardless, even if that's true, when they come together to fight, something far worse is going to happen. For them. <laughs> Not for us or for the world. For them. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back. And he's going to destroy them with the spirit of his mouth and with the epiphany of his coming. And it's going to be a glorious thing. Because look at verse 45. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Oh no, he's set his tabernacle in Jerusalem. He's, he's uh, racing Jerusalem as we read about in Zechariah. The city's being rifled. The women ravished. The houses are being taken. A third of the people are fleeing. And we could, there's so many things we could tie together. I don't have time to tie it all together. But it seems like the end has, is just the world's done. It just seems like evil has taken over. And at that very moment, boom. What's the end of the verse say? Yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. Because right then, the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, according to Zechariah. And his feet come down and touch the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives splits apart to the north to the south. A great valley is developed in between the two, possibly providing a way for Israel to escape from the immediate persecution. And Christ, with the breath of his lips, slays the wicked. So he will come to his end, and none shall help him. So know your Bible, my friends, because the Bible is what is going to actually uh, destroy evil in the end. The Bible is what is going to win. I was walking uh, through a store the other day, getting a birthday gift for Sandra, and saw a perverse sign. Uh, it had to do with homosexuality. It said, love always wins. And they had all the things you could buy there to support the homosexual agenda. And uh, I thought, oh, that is so not true. Perverse love does not always win. It may have a temporary victory. We see that today in the world and in this country. There's a temporary victory. People are gaining more rights. The homosexual agenda is being forwarded. Things are being won. Battles are being won. But in the end, God always wins. Truth always wins. And that's what's going to happen. So know your Bible. Live your Bible. Love your Bible. Uh, don't be boastful about it or arrogant about it. Uh, otherwise, you've missed the, the whole message of it. Satan will empower the Antichrist. People want a miracle show, not God's word. And that's exactly what God's going to let them have in the end times. Uh, of course, it says here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that uh, even him who's coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Who gives the beast or um, the Antichrist his power according to Revelation? Well, the dragon does. The dragon is, is uh, typified as Satan. Okay? And then Satan also raises up for the, uh, the beast a false prophet. So you have an unholy trinity, right? False prophets pictured in Revelation 9 as the lamb that comes out of the earth versus the lamb that comes down from heaven, right? The lamb that comes out of the earth with two horns and uh, as a ram, and he spouts all kinds of things. We don't have time to really go there and read all of that, but he's going to perform all kinds of miracles. Okay? The head of the beast that was wounded is brought back to life. Perhaps that's a resurrection of the Antichrist. Some believe it is. I don't know. But regardless, he's going to perform all kinds of miracles. He's going to actually make fire come down from heaven in the sight of the people, like God did uh, through Elijah. So all these things are going to look so good. And I thought about this. Um, what does the world appreciate right now? It doesn't appreciate the word of God. What does the religious world really look for and thrive on, at least fleshly speaking, what do they constantly want? They don't want the word of God. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but most every church, and this is true with us and in our circles, 
And this is why I try to be so careful about encouraging anything that would be a picture of the flesh, whether it be in our worship, our music, the way we conduct ourselves, because we're all looking for a feeling. We're all looking for an emotion. We're all looking for something that just feels good and looks good and we can experience it. That's exactly what the Antichrist is going to give people. He's not going to come to them and give them the scriptures. They're just going to feel, maybe they're going to feel saved. Maybe they're going to feel like they're having revival. You laugh, but I'm telling you what, that spirit right there, that spirit is alive and well, and that spirit of I want a feeling, I want an emotion, I want something to stir me up, is what eventually leads people astray and makes the word of God secondary to their feelings. And it's something we all can be led away with. Because that is exactly what the Antichrist is going to give people. He's going to give them all kinds of signs and wonders. Things to make them feel good. Things that they can look at and say, wow, look at that. That's amazing. The church numbers are growing. The, pe the, the programs are busting over. Think, and I'm not against numbers and I'm not against programs that help I'm just saying it can get out of hand real quick. And the focus can get out of hand real quick. And uh, everybody's looking for a sign and a wonder. Remember what Jesus told the Pharisees? He said, except you see signs and wonders, you not believe. You won't listen to me giving you the word of God. But you'll, you're looking for a sign and a wonder. That's a carnal mindset. And it's a mindset that will be used to destroy uh, humanity in the future. So be careful. I'm not saying you can't be excited about being saved. I'm not saying you can't be excited about the work of God. I'm not saying there's no room for emotion. But what I am saying is be careful about seeking after emotional things and seeking after signs and seeking after I've got to experience it and I've got to see it. Sometimes life is just downright monotonous. You know, to be righteously consistent is just sometimes downright fleshly speaking, monotonous. But what... You know, every degree towards 32 degrees appears like it's having no effect whatsoever in that ice cube. But when you hit 32, it melts. Oh, it just suddenly melted. No, there was a progressive increase of temperature. And I'll tell you what, if you'll just be righteously consistent, though nobody may see or notice or care, someday it will be evident that you've been doing the right thing for a long time. So just keep at it. Say, well, I've not been doing that. Well, then change your ways. Um... The Antichrist will deceive the lost. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. Why? Because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. That's the only standard that we read about. They're not being destroyed uh, because they weren't good enough people. They're not being destroyed for any other reason than they would not receive the gospel. They rejected it. And that's the standard by which God will judge and uh, separate things. For this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned. And that word damned is, it's kind of a neutral word. It's, it's the idea of just judgment, okay? God's not sending them to hell because they're super bad people and we're all super good people because we're all wicked sinners and the blood of Christ is the only thing that saves anybody. He's, he's casting a judgment on them because they have chosen to reject the gospel. And it is just and right that they should be damned because they receive not the love of the truth. Now, there are some that would say, and, and they're adamant about this, and I, I don't know how you all feel about it, so I'm not trying to create any um, antagonism or hurt anyone's feelings, but I do not personally believe this. There are some who would say, if you have heard the gospel and then the rapture happens, but you have rejected the gospel, if you give somebody the gospel like, 
yeah, okay, that's maybe not for me right now. You know, they're not, I'm not saying they're totally hard, but they just, yeah, it's not for me right now. I mean, who hasn't done that? I've, I've done that. You know, have you done that? Well, there's some who would say, if you do that and the rapture happens, God will send you immediately then and there a strong delusion and you cannot believe. I, I don't buy that. Um, the reason I don't buy that is because you see God over and over again deal with people and they reject and he works with them. And then you do see a progression of hardening. You see it described in Revel Romans chapter 1. You see Jesus talking to the Pharisees and warning them about resisting the spirit and blaspheming the spirit because he that does so hath never forgiveness. And there's a progression of things where, yeah, you can resist and resist until you've just... Uh, um, Hebrews chapter 6, I believe that's also part of it. So that's a very, very controversial passage. But um, so I don't believe that just because you hand someone a track and they say, no, not for me right now, and the rapture happens, that that person is completely hopeless. I don't believe that. Some people just, they're confused. They may think you're just a religious nut, right? They may think you're a JW, or they may think you are a cultist of some kind. And they're like, I just, I don't know. You know, and they're just, they're, they're, they're nervous. They're not necessarily hard, they're just nervous. They're, for a person like that, I seriously don't think that they're falling into this category, but I'm not God. Really, in the end, only he knows the answer to that question. Okay. But uh, I would just be careful about, at the least, I would be aware of being dogmatic one way or the other. I just leave some room for that because don't box in God. Uh, otherwise, your, uh, our little minds will be completely blown up. That they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So they'll all be judged righteously. And uh, this delusion is literally in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, where it says, Buried with him in baptism, wherein we are risen with him, according to the operation of God. That operation word right there is the same word um, delusion. Strong, excuse me, strong. It's the same word strong. And it's the idea of this is a work from God. It has the, uh, it's the word from which we get energy. It's the idea that this can't be resisted. Okay? God moves in. The energy of the Almighty moves in. And the people who have thumbed their nose at God and made their choice, they're done. Now, on the other side of things, understand that there are people out there where they're done. Now, it doesn't matter. You know, It's not up to me to decide who that is. But there are folks who have rejected and rejected and rejected. And according to Romans 1, according to Hebrews 6, they're done. They're finished. The Spirit's worked with them. He's visited them, he's tried, and they've said no. Jesus warned about this in, in, in Matthew chapter 12 when he said, He that blasphemeth the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness. How are you going to ever find forgiveness if you resist the only one who can draw you, which is the Spirit of God? And so there are people out there like that. And um, it's a warning to all of us. You know, Understand, for those who have younger children, you're raising kids that haven't made a decision for Christ. That can happen to them if we're not pointing them in a, in a Christ-like direction, right? And so it's something to really, uh, it's a sobering reality. But God has all things in control. The Lord will uh, judge the Antichrist. His end will be quick. It will be certain. And so we can have minds that are at ease. We can be at peace. Because in good and evil, God has everything figured out. God's got everything under control. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths, Lord. And we thank you for providing these things for us, and I pray that you would help us every day, Lord, to really remember how important it is. Me, help me, Lord, to remember how important it is to, um, to know the scriptures and to apply them and to hide them in my heart. Uh, surely there are life, as, as Moses told the children of Israel, it is not a vain thing for you.
to learn the law and to learn this song, for it is your life, he said. And uh, Lord, it is our life to, to uh, apply and to know the word of God. Surely it will keep us from falling. It's a lamp to our feet. It will help us cleanse our way. And, uh, Lord, in it uh, we find hope and peace and wisdom with which to answer and to help people. So we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that you're in control of all things. We thank you that your word, though shunned and disdained and hated, it will be that which wins the victory someday. We look forward to that day, Lord. And help us to um, be a good example till now, till then, and help us to be a witness. Uh, we ask that you would open up the hearts of people in this country and across the world. And uh, Lord, we ask that you would bring folks into our path and bring us into their path, folks who are soft toward the truth, who are willing to listen and have not already made up their mind about what they believe, but rather are willing to hear. And uh, we uh, will leave those divine appointments to you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name.